Thank you again for listening to our podcast today. Thank you so much for your support. We worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. here at St. John's Lutheran Church in the heart of downtown Martinsburg, West Virginia. Know that you're always welcome to our table and to our worship. God bless. And we hope you enjoy today's message. The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the 12th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave him a dinner. Martha served, and Lazarus was the one, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume, made a pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The fragrance, the house was filled with its fragrance with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone. She bought it so that, it might, that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. This is the gospel of our Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. Invite our children up. You all know when I say the smell of Easter in their church, it's a particular strong aroma of lilies and hyacinths. It's a unique aroma. It has always reminded me, though, of walking into a funeral home. I know it's strange to say that, and it's a strange comparison, but I've been going to funeral homes since I could remember. And they all have a particular aroma. That sweet smell right before you walk into the room where a deceased person, where a deceased brother or sister lies in state. Easter is not about death, yet that same sweet smell which fills our churches on Easter Sunday, the same smell you find in a funeral home. On Easter, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. We celebrate life, yet the smell reminds me of a place of death. So in a way, it's the sweet smell of death. It's the sweet smell of death that we all know, that we will all know one day. Though death is not always sweet, Death almost always involves the pain of loss, of losing someone we love. Even in those moments when death is better than watching a loved one suffer, the pain of loss is still present, making death not a very sweet smell at all. It's more like a stench, a foul odor creeping into our nostrils. The stench of a body breaking, slowly breaking down. The stench that Martha warned Jesus to Jesus after he asked for the stone covering Lazarus' tomb to be rolled away. That stench is not sweet. And that stench is more than just a smell. It also includes the pain of losing Lazarus and the reality of what lies behind the stone. that stone. is a loved one who is lying lifeless on a cold, hard slab of stone. But the sweet smell is that in front of this odor, in front of this reality, is a man who says he is the resurrection and the life. 
And here in our lesson before us today, the man who proclaimed that he is the resurrection of life, who promised Mary and Martha that he could bring his brother back to life, now sits and enjoys a meal with them, with the dead man who smelled of death. Here he is, enjoying a meal that the two sisters have put together for Jesus and the disciples. When Mary takes a bottle of costly perfume, costly lard, nard, and anoints Jesus' feet. A bottle that is said to have cost 300 denarii, and in today's dollars is around $36,000. One denarii is one day's worth of wages. $15 an hour is a living wage times eight. You eventually get the $36,000. To say the least, Jesus has a unique relationship with this family. We are not told who Mary and Martha are in relationship to Jesus, but we know that they are close to Jesus, especially after the raising of their brother. And to me, it makes sense that Mary and Martha would want to do something special for Jesus. A meal for for him and his disciples is a good start. But Mary takes it a whole one step further through a very intimate, extravagant, and dare I say even wasteful act. She anoints the feet of Jesus with perfume reserved for those who have died. My first inclination when I hear this story is to wonder, why do this? What does Mary know that the rest do not? We're told in John's Gospel immediately after this that there is a plot to kill Jesus and a plot to kill Lazarus by the Jewish authorities. Has Mary stumbled onto this plot and is preparing Jesus for the fate that awaits him? Or is she just showing her gratitude for bringing her brother back to life? Why do this very intimate thing? Then we have Judas, the man who would one day hand Jesus over for 30 pieces of silver. This is the man who adjusts to Mary's costly act. The man who is willing to turn over his friend and teacher for a mere 30 pieces of silver. His argument, though, makes sense to reasonable sensibilities. He's not even dead yet. And, and she goes and pours a whole bottle onto his feet. And his feet of all places. Not his head, not his hands, not his body, but his feet. And wipes the perfume away with her hair. And this is at a time when women never touched men in public. How dare she touch Jesus in this way, and how dare she waste such a good bottle of perfume when that money could have been given to the poor. That argument makes sense to us, right? Maybe her, art, maybe her actions are a tad bit excessive. I, for one, could think of a lot of things to do with $36,000 around here. Imagine the people we could serve with Friends Feeding Friends. $36,000 would supply our ministry 12 years of food. Imagine all the low-income children we could bring into the mustard seed with scholarships by, with that $36,000. Or imagine starting an after-school program with $36,000. But Mary's actions, as Jesus explains, are that of a dutiful servant. Her actions teach us what a costly devotion of a friend and true disciple is supposed to look like. Acts of true grace and love regularly get slandered as deviants. If this is a time, as Jesus tells his followers, to care for the poor, care for the poor is also to care for the Lord. Contrasts Mary adds to that of Judas, who seems to be caring, but is actually a thief. 
His attitude towards Mary reflects normal sensibility. You don't go and waste a bottle of costly myrrh on someone who is not dead, especially when there are starving people outside the door. But in response to Judas's question, Jesus prepares Judas for the act of handing him over to death at the hand of Jewish and Roman authorities. Judas's words and actions show us what a conniving false disciple looks like. A true disciple does not steal from the church. A true disciple does not ridicule another member for loving the Lord. A true disciple actually looks out for the needs of the poor, the homeless, and the hungry. A true disciple loves the Lord. Nothing is as it appears in this gospel lesson this day. I mean, how many times in the gospel does Jesus rail against those who oppress the poor? How many times does Jesus reach out to the poor, the sick, and the outcasts? A woman who doesn't necessarily know what she does epitomizes the devout discipleship. She gives us the example of how we are to treat our Lord and Savior. The sweet smell of death now hangs in the air that will continue over the next six days as Jesus moves closer to the hour of his death and burial. The plot against Jesus by Judas and the other authorities which are meant to silence Jesus and his movement, ironically, will fulfill God's own plan of salvation. And on the surface, anyways, wastefulness is approved by Jesus, and the care for the poor takes a back seat, or so it seems. Just when you think you have Jesus all figured out, he goes and throws a curveball at you, and you no longer understand what is right and what is wrong. Is Jesus telling us to ignore the poor here? Because it certainly sounds that way. You will always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Personally, this is not one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It it leaves a sour taste in my mouth. Mainly because it's been so misconstrued over the years. So often this verse is used by others to justify not taking care of the poor. Is Jesus giving us justification to ignore others who are suffering in order to give him our full devotion? Remember, nothing in this story seems to make sense. Nothing, including verse 8. You will always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. It's a verse less about the sad reality of our world and more about where Jesus lives. Perhaps Jesus was not foretelling the forever fate of the poor, but defining the nature of the community called by his name. Those who will follow me will always be found standing with the poor. Jesus always sides with the poor and and can always be found standing with the poor and the outcasts of the world. If we want to offer the kind of full devotion and costly discipleship that Mary's offered Jesus, then go stand with the poor and the outcasts of the world. You anoint them with oil. You feed them with elaborate food and drink because that is where our Lord can be found. Jesus is with the sick. Jesus is with the dying. He's with the hungry. He's with the lepers. He's with the children. We are called to stay to act like Mary and give Jesus the kind of homage that Mary gave to Jesus. To kneel down at his feet of our Savior and anoint them with costly oil. But first we need to find him. And for a man who always sided with the poor, I suggest we not only look in our beautiful sanctuaries for the feet of our Savior, but that we look in the places where the poor lie, where they lie in want and knee, and whose feet look a lot like our Savior's.